Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Chava. And I'm Josh. And today we're actually going to be talking about the Holocaust. Our Hebrew school homework was the DS9 episode Duet and the documentary The Accountant of Auschwitz. And for listeners who want to watch The Accountant of Auschwitz, Canadians can find it on CBC Gem and internationally it's available on Netflix. And it got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. In this episode, we're going to be sharing some personal stories from our own family histories. And this is to sort of ground us in the framework of the Holocaust to bring us all onto the same page. I want to stress that I think that stories such as these are not easy to listen to. And so I'm putting in a a trigger warning here. So Josh is going to tell us a story about his cousin. After my grandfather died, my dad and his brother and sister went up to Sudbury, Ontario to clean up his house. And my dad found a collection of letters. All the letters were written in Yiddish and addressed to his maternal grandparents, postmarked in Poland and other places in Europe in the late 1940s and early 1950s. I was about 10, and Sunday mornings while I was at Hebrew school, my dad would sit in the Beth Sedek Museum with its curator, the late Sam Simchevich. Together with Sam, they would translate the letters. Sam would read them orally while my dad transcribed. The letters were from three of my great-grandmother's relatives, each writing from Europe after the war. And I'm going to read the second letter received from her nephew, Kopel Baum, who I guess would be my first cousin twice removed. Dear auntie and uncle, and also cousins, I write that we are finding ourselves well and healthy. May God give my letter should come to you in best health and happiness. Now I can write you that last week I sent you a picture with a photo. Now today I have received a check for $25 that you've sent me. However, dear auntie, it would be best if you could send us papers so that we could get together, because I am now lonely. From our family, no one remains. My luck was that in 1939, when the murderous Hitlerites entered Poland, they sent me into Russia, and my wife perished in the ghetto. What can I write you? After many years, I came from Russia to Poland. From all our families, no one is here. My heart cannot stop crying. In Uncle Yitzchak Meyer Gutman's house presently lives a Pole, a Christian, and there are no Jews in Melnik. I would like to travel to Melnik to see the parents' and ancestors' graves, but I am afraid. There are still enough murderers. When it is quiet, I will go there and visit the graves of our forefathers. When I should write you everything I experienced in the war, I would have to write books. If God will help us that we could be together, I will tell you about everything. Now I can tell you I have married a girl from Ravna for six months. I had to marry because I was so lonely, I had no one to speak to. My dear one, I was to borrow a suit from a pole for a photograph because at my home I didn't find anything. In my house now lives a Gentile. I wouldn't have the courage to write you about a package. However, you ask me that I should write what I need, so I write to you. What I own, my riches, that I go to work every day, only what I wear, I own. To buy, it's very expensive. I had everything, however. Today, I have nothing. I don't have any underwear or a lighter. Whatever you send will be good. Write me, dear auntie, if I should write the names and years that you can bring us. I am a tailor, and I shall work and return you the expenses with thanks. My wife is Rose. She greets you heartily. She wants to leave where our families were destroyed and turned into soap. Dear auntie and uncle, you should be well and God shall give you long years if you should be healthy and well. I didn't have anyone but you. You are our father and mother now, so we beg that you shouldn't forget us. 
I'm still a young person. I will work and pay you back with thanks. Now write us about our health and the names of your children so we will write to them. Send also your family photo. Now comes Pesach. Seven years I didn't see matzah. Maybe we'll get matzah, but it's very expensive here. I conclude my letter. I thank you heartily. We greet your children, my cousins heartily, from your brother's son, who hopes that you won't forget me. Please answer immediately. Happy Passover, Kopel. Wow, that's an amazing letter. What happened to your cousin? What happened to Kopel? So I don't exactly know. The letters continue for a period of four more years. And, you know, we only see what Kopel writes. We don't see what my great grandparents write. But they describe desperation, poverty, anger, and most of all, loneliness. And in the last letter, it's from 1951, Kopel is still in Poland. It seems like he's unable to get papers to Canada or the United States. But there is one more document. It's an envelope without a letter postmarked in 1952. And the return address on the back of the envelope is Kopelbaum, 22 Yavna L, Tel Aviv. Oh, wow. That's nice to hear. Yeah. So Chava. Yes. You and I experienced differently. This is my family, but I just read a letter from a cousin that I never knew that I never knew of until we found his letters, writing to an ancestor who died before I was born. And your story is different. So could you share with us? I'm going to share the story of my paternal grandparents. Both of my paternal grandparents are survivors of the Nazi Holocaust, and they were young adults through their time in the camps. So they had they had recollection, I would say, though not that I was able to speak to them very much. Unfortunately, both of my grandparents came from Hasidish families in Poland. My grandfather, his name was Leonard, was from a small shtetl in central Poland called Kelts. He had seven siblings and was one of the eldest children. Unfortunately, this is not related to the Holocaust, but when my grandfather was eight years old, his father caught pneumonia and passed away. So at that young age, my grandfather had to stop going to schools. Leonard had been going to Haider, but had to go to work to support the family and hired himself out to other people in the community, often by farming, and he had some sheep. Unfortunately, in the Hasidic community, this leads to social sidelining. And that was the end of my grandfather's formal education. And his family was a little bit on the outside of the Hasidic community that he, he was a part of. As an adult, Leonard was trained as a tailor. He had his own factory with a few employees. He got married to a woman named Sarah, and he had two little boys, Mayer and Michael. Uh, Michael was named after his father, the, the man who had died of pneumonia. My dad has the feeling that my grandfather was something of a worker socialist, but doesn't totally know. My dad called him a Bundist. Leonard thought that his wife and children were taken to be murdered in Treblinka, although he wasn't entirely sure. And he himself ended up in various concentration camps with his little brother, Mendel. As I'd mentioned before, Leonard was one of the eldest children, and his little brother, Mendel, was only two when his father had passed away, so he was one of the smaller children. My grandfather was a hero and was credited for having saved several people, particularly his little brother. As they were transported between different camps, my uncle Mendel kept wanting to give up and just sort of lie down during the death marches which would result in being shot. That was often how people were disposed of. The way my father described it, my grandfather poked him and pushed him, and he only spoke Yiddish, so it, the, I guess the translation is not perfect, basically forcing uh, Mendel to survive. 
It seems as though my grandfather did not really talk very much about his experiences, as was the case for most survivors, to my understanding. It really seems to me that the things my dad knows about are those with evidence that remained, like my uncle Mendel survived, so he knows about my grandfather's history with him. Another story that my father knew was a rather vague one. My grandfather was in a concentration camp. Um, my dad doesn't know where, which one. He kept saying that they were shuttled around between different places. But they were told that they were going somewhere and that they had to line up. And at this point, my grandfather apparently was able to sneak back into the kitchen and he uh, took some food and the SS officers caught him, but they didn't kill him. Instead, they beat him so badly until he couldn't move. And the only reason my father knows this story is because my grandfather had a permanently bent over pinky, so his pinky finger couldn't really straighten out. And this was a scar from this particular incident, and as you can imagine, was an extremely traumatic sign of what they had done to my grandfather, though much of the other stories we really don't know anything about. He ended up in Bergen-Belsen as the Nazis were losing the war. They had shuttled prisoners to camps within Germany, so my grandparents were both prisoners that ended up there. My grandmother, her name was Pola, or Peril, was also a Polish Jew from a Hasidic family um, in Warsaw. My father says that they were part of a sect originating from Piaseczno, Poland, a small town about 16 kilometers south of Warsaw, as I've looked up afterwards. The Rebbe of this sect was apparently extremely admirable, I don't know anything about my own family's involvement with them, just that my great-grandfather and my grandmother's family was extremely religious and didn't want to leave Poland or this Rebbe. I looked up the Rebbe, and his name was Rebbe Klonimus Kalman Shapira, and his history is rather fascinating. I recommend looking him up. He wrote a book in the Warsaw Ghetto, and unlike many of the other Rebbe's, and this is something that I think my father is very proud of, of various other Hasidic sects, he refused opportunities to escape in order to inspire, help, and ultimately he died with his community. Anyway, sidetrack on my grandmother Pola. So my grandmother was in the Warsaw Ghetto until its very end and liquidation, at which point she was transported to Auschwitz. Her whole family was murdered, and she was alone for her time in the camps. My father does not fully understand how she could have survived, though she shared several stories with him. He thinks that her complexion may have helped, because she had reddish blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm going to share some of her survival stories, although they're very vague. They're basically my father's recollections as a, as a child hearing these stories. In Auschwitz, my grandmother was the personal servant to a female SS officer. She cooked and cleaned for her, and for whatever reason, this officer really liked my grandmother. Several times they had put my grandmother in line for the gas chambers. Other survivors in Montreal told my father that Paula was never hysterical when put in line, as many people were. This female SS officer pulled her out of the line whenever this happened. My grandmother said she would save her bread. Most people just ate it immediately, but she always made sure to keep a bit for later, and would sometimes give it away to other people. There was another survivor that my father met in Montreal that shared with him that my grandmother saved her life. This woman had ended up lying on a pile of bodies after an execution by firing squad. Pola had seen her moving, and so pulled her off and into a bunker. My grandmother also ended up in Bergen-Belsen for liberation, and this is where my grandparents met each other. There was this older woman in the DP camp, the displaced persons camp, who acted as a matchmaker to make connections and sort of rebuild and put my grandparents together. 
My grandfather survived with Mendel, his little brother, and my grandmother was alone. They didn't stay in the DP camp. They opened a little business in Hanover with a couple other survivors that my grandfather knew from Celts. My uncle was born in 1948, and eventually shortly after that, they went to Montreal on a boat called General Lankfit, that was the name of the boat, with this group of people. They took a few belongings with them, and one recollection that they had obviously shared with my father was that they had this camera of German make. It was a Leica camera, which is still exists now. And funnily enough, it actually went overboard <laughs> over the side of the boat because the boat ride was very turbulent and was a difficult journey with um, my uncle as an infant. They landed in Halifax and unfortunately were introduced to North American Jewry in the most disgusting way I could possibly imagine. My grandmother with her newborn baby was approached by a wealthy Jewish woman. This woman offered to buy my uncle from my bubby. Imagine you've just lost your entire family. And this small bundle is all you have in the world. And some, forgive my language, asshole, <laughs> tells you, look at you, so depleted. Do you really think you can raise him? I'll give you money and I'm wealthy. He won't want for anything. They continued on the boat to Montreal in any case and had my father a couple years later. My grandparents never really recovered from the Holocaust, similarly to many other survivors, I'm sure. My grandfather was somehow literate in Yiddish, though my father didn't know where he picked it up and was not literate in any other language. He worked as a tailor in a factory and supported my grandmother, father, and uncle that way. But unfortunately, I never met him, as he died of leukemia when my father was a young adult. The established Jewish community that existed already in Montreal was not at all welcoming to the survivors or my grandparents. They were ashamed of them. Why did they let themselves be slaughtered? Why didn't they resist? Etc. My grandparents struggled a lot to integrate into the community. But this sort of ends what I wanted to share about my personal family history and opens a, a different type of discussion. Wow. My father remembers it changing at one point, but my poor grandparents did not receive a warm welcome to Canada. I'm going to share my own emotions about it. Yeah. My own emotions about the Holocaust have been difficult throughout my life, though it has been dulled through the generations. My grandparents were completely traumatized. My father and uncle were traumatized by them, and I was by my father, but to a much lesser extent. I used to stay up at night mourning the loss of my family, my cousins that I would never have, and perhaps most horrifying and difficult to me, the fact that I would not be alive were it not for the German extermination of the rest of my family, as my grandparents only met because of their mutual survival. Intergenerational trauma is very real. And I still today struggle with the concept of the Holocaust and the grief that comes along with it. Since I was eight, and I actually learned that the Holocaust was not, in fact, a large plane crash that my bubby survived, it has been a struggle to come to terms with, and has been one of the main deterrents of faith, but drive to preserve Jewish culture in my personal life. Most recently, actually, I, I went on a mission to find this photo of my bubby, because at one point, we had friends in Montreal that visited Yad Vashem, and they had seen this big photograph, and they were shocked because they like turned a corner in the museum, and there was my grandmother in this big photo. And I had never seen the photo. The last couple months, actually, I spent a lot of time trying to find it. I knew that my bubby was liberated in Bergen-Belsen, and I knew that that was the subject of the photo. And quite disturbingly, the way that I determined which photo it was was because I actually recognized myself in the photo, because um, my Bobby and I look so alike. I've seen the photo, and Chava, it looks like you're in the photo. It's, yeah.
I'm okay. <laughs> okay. Chava, that was a lot and and so personal and deep and thank you for sharing it. Let's take a breath and then come back and talk about Star Trek. (laughs) Sure. Duet is the second last episode of the first season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and for me, it's always been when the show grows its beard. The episode was loosely based on the play The Man in the Glass Booth by Robert Shaw, and I'm going to give a short summary. A freighter docks at Deep Space Nine, and a patient needs medical attention for Kalinor Syndrome. Kira rushes to sickbay, knowing that anyone with Kalinor Syndrome must have been at Galatep, a Cardassian forced labor camp that experienced a mining accident. She expects a Bajoran who was enslaved at Galatep, but instead finds a Cardassian, so she calls for Odo to arrest him, saying his presence at Galatep proves he was a war criminal. The Cardassian identifies himself as Amon Maritza, and he's not on any list for war crimes. Kira was at Galatep as a liberator 12 years ago, and she describes murder, humiliation, rape, beating, elderly buried alive if unable to work. Sisko interviews Maritza. Maritza says he doesn't have Kalinor syndrome, but a related one, and that he's never been to Galatep or Bajor. He says he's a file clerk. A Bajoran drunk in an adjacent cell complains that he's being locked up with a Cardassian. Bashir tells Sisko that Maritza is lying, that he does have Kalinora, and this means he had to have been at Galatev. Kira convinces Sisko to put her in charge of the investigation. She feels a duty to those who died at Galatev. For all those Bajorans, she said, who can't ask, let a Bajoran do this. Odo confirms prima facie Maritza's story that he's a file clerk who teaches file clerking. Kira interrogates Maritza for the first time. He acts arrogantly, saying that he quote, missed the honor of being at Galatep. Then he admits that he was there, but says he was just a filing clerk in the records office. An exemplary clerk, lauded by the camp's head, Gal Darheel. Kira thinks he's a liar. He admits he worked there. He saw bodies from, quote, accidents, illnesses, and feuds among the workers, and heard screams, he says, but never saw atrocities. Gal Dukat contacts Sisko and says Maritza is a nobody and that he should be released, and he warns of growing Bajoran fanaticism. Dax and Kira talk, and Kira says, As far as I'm concerned, if he was at Galatep, he's lying. Dax tries to talk Kira down, suggesting she's only after vengeance. Odo further corroborates that Maritza is a file clerk. In ops, they pull up an old photograph of Galatep that contains an Amon Maritza, but Amon Maritza doesn't look like the man they have in their holding cell. The man in their cell looks like Galdar Heel, head of the camp. Sisko and Kira meet and agree that if Maritza is a mere file clerk, he'll be let go and there's no further discussion on the matter. Maritza admits he is Darheel. He goads Kira into saying there can't be war crimes because there was no war, and he says of Maritza he was a magnificent file clerk, but I'm Darheel. He admits to ordering arbitrary executions and says he's proud of everything he accomplished and welcomes execution. Kira wonders how many are still free, how many war criminals. Odo tries to comfort her as she describes her hate, but Odo latches onto something. Maritza knew that Kira was in the Shakara resistance. But this puzzles Odo, who doesn't know why Galdar Heel would know that 
Kira was in the Shakar resistance. Kira goes back for another interrogation. Darheel attributes his knowledge of Kira's participation in the Shakar resistance to Maritz's filing system and laughs about reading well-organized termination reports and talks joyously of the cleansing of Bajor. Odo and Quark observe survivors of Galatep who've gathered at the station. Odo talks to Bashir for medical records and then reaches out to Dukat who says that Galdarheel is dead that he's absolutely dead, and that thousands of people attended his funeral. So then who is in our holding cell, Odo wonders. Darheel questions Kira, wanting to know how many Cardassians she's killed. Kira says she has regrets, but that they were fighting for their survival. What you call a genocide, Darheel says, I call a day's work. Odo tells Sisko that Darheel is dead, and tells Kira that Darheel never had Calamara syndrome because he was working off Bajor when the incident occurred. Odo says that Maritza put all of his affairs in order and specifically requested passage on a ship that was stopping at Bajor. Kira wants him deported, but Bashir says he's found evidence that Maritza or Darheel has had reconstructive surgery. Kira goes back in for one final interrogation, asking how he got Kalinara syndrome and about his dermal surgery. Why are you pretending to be Darheel? He goes apoplectic. He says that while our useless filing clerks packed their files, I ordered soldiers to go on random killing sprees. Kira says that he's Maritza, who the Cardassian calls a useless bug, and that he is the butcher of Galatab. But Kira says that Darheel is dead. Maritza breaks down and says he would cover his ears and weep because he couldn't bear the screams for mercy from the Bajorans. He admits it all. He says Maritza needs to be punished. His plan was to confess to being Darheel so that he as Darheel could be arrested and tried and his testimony put into the public to help Cardassia and Bajorheel. He says it's necessary for Cardassia to admit its guilt and that he should be executed. But Kira says that would be just another murder. I won't help kill another. On their way out of security, Maritza is approached by the Bajoran drunk, who stabs him and kills him. It doesn't matter, says the Bajoran, if he's Darheel or not. He's a Cardassian, that's reason enough. No, says Kira, it's not. Thanks, Josh. We also watched The Accountant of Auschwitz, which is a documentary. And there are so many parallels between Duet and this real life story. Duet was a fantastic episode, I thought. And similarly to Josh, I think it was like the first time I was like, okay, I guess DS9's okay. Uh, I didn't like DS9 in the beginning. Though now I'm really loving it, I should add. So we're actually going to go straight to our interview with the director of The Accountant of Auschwitz, Matthew Scheukit. Belay that order, number one. Red alert. Matthew Scheuchet is a Toronto-based filmmaker and the co-founder of Scheu Pictures. In 2018, Matthew directed the documentary The Accountant of Auschwitz, which premiered at the Hot Docs Film Festival and won four Canadian Screen Awards, including Best History Documentary. The film is available for Canadians on CBC Gem and iTunes, and streams internationally on Netflix. Matthew, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. When I started uh, looking for your contact information to get in touch with you, I found that on your website, when you hit contact, it does the uh, the combat chirp. And I thought, this guy is definitely coming on our show. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a really powerful film, and Rafa and I actually saw this together in Hot Docs in its uh, original run back in 2018. We have assigned it to our listeners as the Hebrew School homework, but much like real Hebrew School homework, we kind of figure that most of our listeners don't do it. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the film and the trial of Oscar Groening. Oscar Groening was, or I guess was labeled later as the bookkeeper or the accountant of Auschwitz. He was an SS officer, so he wasn't drafted to the army. He volunteered, he took the tests. He was eventually assigned to the Auschwitz camp, just outside of Krakow, Poland. His job there was basically a bookkeeper. He was in charge of filing things, but most importantly, he was in charge of calculating the currencies that came in, think of Auschwitz, if you've seen films like Schindler's List or The Pianist or seen documentaries, the trains were coming in all the time. So all the jewelry, all the valuables, all the currencies, the gold teeth that were extracted from bodies before they were cremated, after they had been gassed. He was in charge of calculating everything, sending it off to Berlin. That was his job. He was not a high up person, even though it might sound like he was, but he was not. He was not in charge of executions. And in the summer of 1944, between May and July, that's when the Hungarian transports were coming in. So around 350 to 400,000 Jews from Hungary, from Czechoslovakia, from Yugoslavia, from Romania, came day and night. And his job there was to keep order on the ramp where they would decide who goes left, who goes right, who go, who dies instantly, which is about 90%, and who would be given, quote-unquote, temporary life before they'd be worked to death. The war ends, and he went back to his life. You know, he lived a life. He had two sons. And in 2015, he went on trial. By the time the trial started, he was 94 for being an accessory to the murder of 300,000 Hungarian Jews. The film is about this trial. Why did it take so long for justice to catch up with him? Is he the man who should be on trial if he was just a bookkeeper, a file clerk, accountant, what have you? Because all the higher up people are dead. He wasn't responsible for killing anyone, but the idea was he was a cog in the machine. You worked in one of the death camps. You were a part of the killing machine. So he was put on trial. And the film is not only about the trial. I wouldn't call it like a trial documentary because we delve into the ideas of justice, statute of limitations and forgiveness, who is responsible and war crimes and how does that relate to today. So we watched Duet from Deep Space Nine, season one. I watched your film and duet back to back, and it was wow. kind of eerie, I found. <laughs> Something that Adam, my partner, and I were discussing afterwards was what really was the purpose of sentencing him to time in prison? We were kind of unsure of how we really felt about it, whether we wanted him to go to prison. Adam was kind of like, I feel like there's no point because you're not really protecting right. anyone. Yeah. And I... I mean, I have family that came out of Auschwitz. And to me, I I see that person like was part of the massacre of my family. Like, I think he should go to prison 100%. Exactly. It's super personal. How did you approach that? Myself and 
the producers, Ricky Gerwitz and Rick Esther Bienstock, and also my editor, Ted Husband. We didn't want to take a side. We wanted to kind of show all the facts and let the audience decide. There's a gray area in everything about this trial. He never killed anyone, but he was a part of the machine. So when the film starts, it's very patriotic Nazi music. It's supposed to be his photo album because he actually kept a photo album of the days back in Auschwitz. And there's pictures of him doing high jump. And on the Auschwitz uh, team, mm-hmm. like they played. It, it's like, it's insane to think about. So right away you think he's guilty. He's a Nazi, done, hang him, send him to jail. But then you find out more detail about him. You know, in 2005, he did an interview for a documentary. I'm not sure if it's still on Netflix called Auschwitz, The Final Solution. Mm -hmm. At that time, before the Demyanyuk case, John Demyanyuk, which is very important to the film. And also there were a lot of connections in the DS9 episodes. It's kind of a blending of Oscar Groening and John Demyanyuk. There's like many layers to it. It's really a great episode. You find out that he did this interview. He wants to stand up against Holocaust deniers. Some people, as you saw in the film, say, well, he shouldn't have been charged because he was remorseful. He didn't seem that remorseful. <laughs> he didn't He didn't apologize. But as Bill Gleed, who is a survivor from Toronto, who tragically passed away just before the film's premiere, he says in that scene when he's walking with Max Eyes and another survivor, they both testified at the trial, all I would want him to say is I'm sorry. And he never said that. But even the survivors said they don't care if he ends up spending a day in jail, which he doesn't end up doing. Mm-hmm. The point is you have a perpetrator who took part in these crimes in whatever way he did, saying, yes, it happened. He was the first Nazi who really came along and, and spoke in the courtroom yeah. in intense detail. Meanwhile, you have Holocaust deniers outside saying there were no people gassed in Auschwitz. And there's been a rise, obviously, of anti-Semitism lately Mm -hmm. and Holocaust distortion and denial. So for the purposes of history, you have a Nazi in a German courtroom, which is also important, testifying that these things did happen. That was what a lot of the survivors were proud of. Justice took 70 years to catch up with him. His attitude, though, was very different, I thought, from like Maritza, the character in Duet, who was obviously extremely traumatized from having been a part of the Bajor occupation and working in Galatab. Well, that's like, as the episode unravels, there's so many layers to his character. Rewatching the episode, he says he was a file clerk. So automatically I'm thinking he's just like Arthur Groening. Mm -hmm. And you find out, oh, he actually was Gull Darheel. That character, Gull Darheel, was similar to Ivan the Terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have the John Demiani trial in the film. John Demyanyuk immigrated to the States in the 50s, and he was an SS officer who was actually Ukrainian, who worked in Sobibor. And it said that on his immigration papers. Eventually, he's sent to Israel in the 80s. But that's because survivors from Treblinka, another death camp, said he was Ivan the Terrible, who wasn't just a guard there. He was a sadistic, evil man who would beat prisoners before they were gassed. He would go in with a sword and cut people like he was insane. So he was put on trial for being this sadistic person. You know, after the Berlin Wall fell, they got these documents from the Soviet Union that he wasn't that man. He was just another, not as terrible Ivan of Sobibor. Mm-hmm. The connections were amazing in the episode just to that. And then you you find out that he, in the end, which we don't really delve into in the film. Yeah. But you remember the scene where he describes the crying suitcase. There was crying coming 
Oh my god, that story, yeah. I like I think about it on the regular. The film traveled the world to many film festivals and whenever I was at a film festival, I always liked to sit in the audience to feel like the emotion and for that scene people were always like it was it, it was hard for people to watch. Basically there was a suitcase crying. A mother had hid her baby at, when they arrived on the ramp in Auschwitz in a suitcase and a fellow SS officer just took the baby out of the suitcase and, and murdered it, smashed its body against the door of a truck. Yeah, and the way he described it was just so vivid. I like from the first exactly. time I'd seen the film, I thought that they had video evidence of it and it was just me remembering exactly. yeah. him describing it. The thing about the trials in Germany, there's no filming. So that was one of our difficulties going into the film. There's filming during the recesses, but when the proceedings are happening, there's nothing. So we just had the transcript. I had the idea for like sketch animations. Huh, I didn't even realize yeah. that. It's really well done. Thank you. Apparently what he said in the trial, which we didn't delve into in the film, is that after he saw this atrocity of the baby being killed, he asked for a transfer because it was he didn't know what this place was. Whether that's true or not, we don't know because they found no evidence of a transfer and he ended up staying there another two years. Right. Like at the end of the episode when you have Maritza breaking down and it's really an amazing performance by Harris Yolen, who's he's a great actor. I think he's been in some other Star Trek episodes also. It was almost as if in the Count of Auschwitz, he was pretending to be someone that he wasn't, where he was just a smaller SS officer. It was almost boasting sometimes in the courtroom. Why did you want to be an SS officer? Well, they got the nice uniform and I could boss the Slavic people around. Like he said all these terms in the courtroom. I got a nice gun. It's almost like he wished he was a higher up person. One of the things that really shocked me in the film and having read a lot about the Holocaust, watched a lot about the Holocaust, I don't expect to be to be shocked. Right. <laughs> Was there's no evidence of any SS officer facing death or serious consequences other than, I think, like career consequences for refusing to take part in atrocities. Yeah. It completely reframed the way I thought about complicity. Some of the lawyers in the film, like Becca Whitman, talks about how the early trials were almost cathartic for Germany, where they highlighted the enormity of the crimes and nailed a few bad apples to the wall, and everybody else goes free. It's insane. That was some of the most interesting stuff when we sat down with Rebecca Whitman. 800,000 SS officers survived the war. Of those, 100,000 were investigated. Of that, 6,200 were brought to trial, but of that, only 124 ever received sentences. It's frightening. You always hear, well, I, I had to because they would have killed me. I didn't have a choice. I had to be in Auschwitz. They, they would have murdered me. There was the Nazis. So you, just, you would believe that because, of course, it's the evil Nazis. But there's zero evidence of any case where an SS officer or a German officer wanted to opt out of shooting or gassing or whatever and then being killed. You know, they might have been sent away to a different post, but no one was ever executed. There's some incredible figures in the films, and I think especially of the survivors. Actually, my wife has worked quite a bit with Max Eisen through Facing History and ourselves, and yeah. he's spoken in her classroom. Also, the, the incredible Benjamin Ferenz. Who's now 100 years old. He was the last person we filmed. He was on a podcast for the BBC. This is like right when we were finishing the film, and I was blown away. This guy was like 98 years old. I'm like, we have to film him. We have to go to Florida. He's really a hero. Amazing. And he was the American prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, for the Einsatzgruppen trial. He acknowledges that as important as the Nuremberg trials were, they kind of were a failure because so many of them ended up, you know, they executed a few. And then all these people who were like, these are the worst Nazis. 
Oscar Groening is like nothing compared to these people. But a lot of them were let go because of pressure, tensions between the United States and Russia. But you have the Cold War starting, so they needed West Germany to be an ally. There was a, a scene in the episode when Gal Dukat kind of insinuates that to Cisco, where he says, well, neither of us are Bajoran. We don't want to, to cause bitterness between the Federation and Cardassia. So I, I kind of thought of that connection. He was trying to like hint to something like that. And that's what happened at the end of the Nuremberg trials where they kind of fizzled away and so many of them were let go. And as you mentioned before with Rebecca Whitman, the trials, these show trials that they had, they were putting bad Nazis on trial, but they were kind of just saying, see, we did it. We proved to everyone. And now we can all go back to our life. And then they were released. It's like, it's like, it's hard to grasp the reality of that. It's crazy. I think Dershowitz in the film points out the insanity of the fact that most of the West German judges in the 50s and 60s had been members of the Nazi party. Most of the prosecutors in the Ministry of Justice were Nazis. What do you do when the whole system, I mean, it is not every single German, but if we think about Groening as being an accessory to murder because he operated the machine of death, millions of people were cogs in that machine of death. Right. How do we grapple with that, not just for the Holocaust, but also thinking about genocide in, in a larger context? Well, it's like a communal guilt. Eli Rosenbaum, who worked at the Department of Justice, who we interviewed in the film, he alluded to that a lot. How do you prosecute when the majority of the father's brothers, grandfathers, took some part in these crimes? How do you really do that? It's, it's too big. You know, what Ben Ferenz was trying to do with the Einsatzgruppen trial, you had 3,000 men who marched into Poland and into the Ukraine, and they killed a million and a half men, women, and children, all shot in pits. It's insane. And so he thought we'd make an example by choosing the people who were in charge, 22 of them, which was also an interesting fact. The reason why only 22 were on trial is because that's how many seats they had in the dock. It's always a part in the film that people like, can't believe mm -hmm. like these were people who were smart germans who were organizing like the bobby yar massacre of like thirty-three thousand people in two days educated people i was actually on the march of living with bill gleed and max eisen and bill had told me that he's going to be going soon to germany to testify in a trial and i'm thinking like they still have nazi trials it's been so many decades it's been 70 years but the point which Ben Ferenz, who's now 100, says age doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You took part in a crime when you were 21. Aren't you still guilty when you're 51 or 71? He points out pretty poignantly that if he had been given a life sentence in his 30s, he still would have been imprisoned if he were still alive in his 90s. And in the atrocities committed, being in your 90s certainly was no way to save yourself. And, and if anything, extinguished any hope of surviving. Exactly. Yeah, like lucky him. He lived for 70 years getting away with it. Only at the end, it really, yeah. Well, one of the points that we were talking about when making the film is like, is his biggest crime the fact that he outlived the real evil perpetrators, the ones who invented the gas chambers, the ones who were pouring the Zyklon B, the ones who were shooting in the Einsatzgruppen, who, if they were alive now, they'd be over 100. Mm -hmm. So is he put on trial just because he outlived the rest? There were so many questions. And a lot of people would come up to me after screenings and would say he should have they should have killed him right away. He's he was a Nazi and he deserves to die. Like Kira says in the episode to Dax. Yeah. 
that's just it. I don't want him to be just a file clerk. I want him to be, I don't know, something worse. You want him to be guilty. As far as I'm concerned, if he was at Galatep, he is guilty. They're all guilty. I don't think it would have made a difference if he went to jail. He was found guilty. His sentence was four years in jail. Mm -hmm. So people were like, so what is it? Like a, a hundred thousand murders gives you one year or whatever they said. They appealed it. And meanwhile, he's at his house. Eventually he died and he never spent a day in jail. But I don't think that matters because the high court of Germany, it denied the appeal and they agreed, they agreed with the original verdict. So when he died, the precedent was set. Whereas when Demyanyuk died, his verdict was on appeal so he died a presumed innocent man mm -hmm. but at least they had proven that they can still go after these guys because you used to have to prove that this perpetrator killed this victim on this day and this was the name of the victim and this was your witness it's when you change that demyanuk the second trial the first trial remember he was on trial for being a, like a different guard but then they said it shouldn't matter that's why he was extradited again to germany in 2000 and 2009 by saying just by being there Mm -hmm. as a guard in one of these six death camps. When I was on the March to Living, my guide, he didn't like to use the word camp for these places because these were like extermination centers. It's a fake train station. Auschwitz was different because it was a hybrid camp, but the other ones like Sobibor, Belzec, Treblinka, it's a fake train station. You get off, you go into the gas chamber. That's it. And there were not that many guards. So they were all a part of the killing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think time should deviate from the main point where would be the line of time really like how old does he have to be to be too old yeah doesn't really make much sense well the sequence in the film after Demyanyu, before we basically lead it back to the beginning where we show the interview with groaning which basically put him in the spotlight they're looking through all the files well this one has alzheimer's so we can't try him this one she died so we can't do her literally hardly any left there's a trial that's going on now, but I'm not sure what's happening with COVID. He was a guard in Stutthof in Germany, but he was like 17 at the time. So he's being charged now in his 90s in a juvenile court. Wow. So some people say, is it even worth it? These people are so old. Some people say, well, it's justice for the survivors. Kira says to Cisco, I owe it to them. Cisco says, you mean the victims? She says, that's right. The ones who move too slowly and never again. I'm asking for all the Bajorans who can't ask. You see Hedy at the end of the film, she says, I suppose I got some sort of justice for my murdered mother and father. Yeah. So something that I really noticed actually when I went to Berlin, I guess in 2018, was that I really felt the sorrow of Germany. I really felt like they knew it was a mistake and they were sorry. Like there are little memorials everywhere. And uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't get that feeling about being in England about the British Empire. Whereas in Germany, it was like, really, I felt that. Yeah. And that's very different, obviously, from Cardassians. But there's also a huge amount of time between the two. The occupation of Bajor was, it's literally at the end in the first episode of the series, right? It's like right after that. Right. Whereas this is Decades later, what would it look like then? I don't know. So maybe if the Nuremberg trials had been a bit more effective, as Maritza had wanted this trial to be, it could have maybe had some effect on the maybe the greater German population or the world in general. But you're right. They have amazing Holocaust education there. Yeah. Some people say oh, it's because of guilt. But when I was in line, like you literally have to be at the court at like six in the morning, but there were a lot of students. There were a lot of high school students from that town who said to me, they know that their grandparents were fought in the wars and that this town used to be very pro-Nazi, but we want to change that. 
this trial needs to happen. Thomas Walter, who's in the film, who is the lawyer to the plaintiffs, he's basically the one representing them, who made all these trials happen. His father hid Jews during the war. When I think about principles of fundamental justice, one of them obviously is the rule of law. The idea that he can never get away from these crimes appeals to me on that level. But another element of fundamental justice is protection from arbitrariness. At the beginning of the film, you know, one of the locals says something along the lines of, they let all the big guys go, and now they go after the little guys. How do you square that dilemma? I wish we could have done more of that, you know, just asking the local townspeople. That guy was actually very, very nice. He owned a restaurant across the street from the hotel we were staying at. We went there for dinner one night, and then he started telling me about his life and that he grew up and there were train tracks right by his farm that used to lead to a concentration camp. And he didn't know what it was until he was like 15. Just like that other guy said, Hans Jürgen, whose parents were both Nazis. When he said they hang the little ones and the big ones get away. You know, what he's saying is it's not wrong, but it shouldn't matter. And then you have the other people. Well, all of our fathers hailed Hitler. They were all followers. You have a mix of opinions. But I hope that he was plagued by nightmares from what he saw. We'll never really know. I wish I would have been able to have gotten an interview with him. And we did go to his house. You see that we were outside his house. After that interview, he did 10 years before for BBC, where they said, well, what about the children? And he's like, well, they're also Jews it's in their blood. That's why it's okay. One of the challenging parts of the film is... Eva. Yeah. Eva Kor. Not just her own choice to forgive him, which... I, you know, I felt was an option available to her at her own discretion, at her own judgment. But the way in which the film shows that being leapt upon as something praiseworthy, like almost like survivors had a duty to forgive. What do you make of that? It's definitely like the most controversial part of the film. And again, when I'm sitting in a theater and, I, and I'm looking at people's reaction, just listening to the audience... That's like where you hear, oh, oh my, oh my God, like what, when she does that. I remember talking, I don't know if you've met, he's a very well-known survivor in Toronto, Nate Leipziger. He's a friend of my family, yeah. He's amazing. And some of you might recognize him if you've seen him, because a few years ago, he took Prime Minister Trudeau and his wife to Auschwitz and gave him a tour there. And I remember talking to him about Eva Kaur. This was literally right after it happened. And he was so upset not necessarily that she forgave him, but that that's all that was making the headlines. You have this trial, a Nazi trial, 70 years later, he's speaking in the courtroom. You have Jewish survivors who are flying to Germany to testify, but all that's making the headlines is Jewish survivor forgives the Nazi. Isn't this amazing salvation? So he was upset that that's all that was making the headlines. And it kind of looked like we can wrap this whole Holocaust business in a nice bow. You know, they forgave them. It's over. There's a certain Christian normativity, too, with it. You know, like a turn the other cheek. Exactly. And now she's a very interesting woman, and she passed away uh, last year. She actually died in Krakow. She gave a tour. She ran a museum in Terre Haute, Indiana, called Candles. And the whole message of her museum was forgiveness. We need to forgive. And this wasn't the first time there was a, a doctor. He was like a Mangala. His name was Dr. Munch. And she went with him in the 90s to Auschwitz and they signed a document that these things happened and she forgave him and he accepted her forgiveness. It was like a whole thing. So that's that's all part of her shtick, if you will. 
But again, she has every right. She was a Mangala twin. She was tortured. Her whole family was killed. Her and her sister, thankfully, luckily survived. Her sister died in the 80s of complications, clearly related to what her body had gone through from Mangala. So she obviously has every right to forgive, but not at that moment. It was, it was inappropriate. And the survivors didn't want to have anything to do with her. I think that was her plan the whole time. And also she implies that everybody should forgive, exactly. which it's totally her right to forgive if that's what she wants to do. But She's not just forgiving the accountant of Auschwitz. She's forgiving Hitler. She's forgiving all the Nazis. She forgives Mengele. Very controversial, but I like that it sparks discussions. You know, at the end of the episode of Duet, it's almost like Kira forgives Maritza. Nerys doesn't really have the right to forgive him because she wasn't a survivor, right? She was a liberator. Right. I think she's a, a different category. Yeah. She can not hold any ill will towards him, but it's not really on her to forgive. What Max says... Because of what Eva did, we, we, we asked all the survivors, can you forgive? Would you forgive him if he said, I'm sorry, can you forgive him? And Max Eisen said, I don't have the right. How can I forgive on behalf of my murdered parents, grandparents, my siblings, everyone I ever, I can't forgive on behalf of them. So neither should she. That's what he had to say about it. Yeah. Sad because I told you, Bill Glead passed away just before the film premiered. I made an effort to say, we're now entering the era when we won't have any survivors, any perpetrators, any veterans, anyone who was there, anyone who remembered it. So it's so important to tell these stories because once too much time passes, how will we commemorate the Holocaust? People have fears that it's going to dwindle into the footnotes of history. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us at uh, Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to rewatch some Star Trek and relate it to the Jews. So it's been an honor. Thank you. Welcome back. That was a treat and really brought me back. In some ways, I feel like we already did this episode walking back from Hot Docs like two years ago when we first <laughs> saw that documentary. So true. Let's start with the big one. Should Oscar Groening have been put on trial for the crimes he committed 70 years prior? And if found guilty, was incarceration the appropriate penalty? I think, yes, he did have to be tried. I don't know if incarceration, like, I still don't really understand what the purpose of that was. Yeah, I, I thought it was worth the trial. And that was a super important thing for particularly that it was like it was put on by Germany, right? What did you think, Josh? So I think there's a few different pieces of it. The first one, I think it's worth thinking about, like, in first principles, why do we convict people of crimes? And why do we give them penalties? You know, I'm a, I'm a lapsed lawyer of sorts. <laughs> um, and I, I was flipping through um, Canada's criminal code, section 718, which basically sets out like the principles of sentencing. And I think it's useful to go through like the six bullet points that Canada as an institution sets out as the reasons that we punish people. Okay, so the first one, to denounce unlawful conduct and the harm done to victims or the community. So like denunciation. To deter the offender and other persons from committing offenses. So there's like two in there, specific deterrence, like 
the accused, and general deterrence, like stopping someone else from doing that. To separate the offender from society where necessary. To assist in rehabilitating offenders. To provide reparations for harm done to victims or the community. And to promote a sense of responsibility in offenders and acknowledge the harm that was done to victims and communities. So, like, let's pick those apart. I think denunciation is where the trial gets it right. Yeah, definitely. I think that is, first and foremost, the most important part of the trial. And I think that's their main reason that they even had the trial at all. Saying it is wrong to be a cog in the machine of death. Yes. And we as a society will punish those who participate in it. Even though we as a society voted to perpetuate it. But okay, something else. Right. That's like who's culpable. And that as we learned in the in the documentary, West Germany, basically with the support of its Western allies, swept it under the rug. They made an, an example of a few people, but let basically everyone else go. Right. I mean, everyone was involved, so. Well, we shouldn't say everyone. Everyone knew someone involved. Yeah. That makes it very difficult to have proper trials, I guess. I mean, yes and no. Not every German was a member of the SS or a guard at a concentration camp or an executioner in the Eisensgruppen. There are a large but quantifiable number of people who committed the most serious crimes. Right. I was referring a bit more to the fact that several of the judges were SS. Mm -hmm. If your judicial system relies on proper judgment from people like that, then what exactly are you supposed to do with that? So then the next one was specific and general deterrence. Well, specific deterrence is irrelevant. Oscar Groening's not going to be a guard in another concentration camp. Yeah. And general deterrence, I don't think so. I, I don't think anybody is thinking, gee, I really want to wipe out my neighbors, but what if 70 years from now I get dragged into court? Like, that's... That's not there. And one of the disturbing things of this film is that, you know, it shows it's not at all clear that people who participate in crimes against humanity, even today, will face like any judicial consequences for it. And there are genocides going on in the world right now today that seem like the perpetrators are not being held to account and may never be held to account. I think that's one of the main tenets of genocide, too. If a genocide is possible and is being carried out, then it's likely that the perpetrators of the genocide are untouchable or are not going to be punished by the authorities. To separate an offender from society where necessary. I think that if there were any Jewish or Roma people or other minorities that were that perished in the Holocaust, if there were any of those members presently alive in the small town where Oscar Groening lived... I think that there is a good case to be made for separating him from society because that is very traumatic to hmm. walk the streets and know that that guy was like there when your whole family died. Yeah. It's a chilling moment in the film when they mention they were about to nab one guy and then he died. And then they show the street that his house was on and it's like a five minute drive from my house. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. The, the one in Toronto. That was so crazy. Ugh. Rehabilitation. Well, I, I don't know how you can... What are, what are you even rehabilitating at that point? I mean, he is he lived his life to the fullest. He had a great long life. He didn't spend a day in prison. 
He had Mm -hmm. 70 years with his children, his grandchildren. I think that the philosophical question of like, are you the same person 70 years later is not legally helpful. Yeah. We give people life sentences without parole. (laughs) Yeah. Like he, if, if he had got the sentence he deserved at the time, he would have still been in prison. To provide reparations for harm done to victims in the community. Yeah, justice was not done, and justice still is not done, but it's at least the beginning of justice. Yeah. At least an attempt in the last moment before the window for justice closes forever. Mm -hmm. And to promote a sense of responsibility in offenders, well... I don't know about that, but but it does acknowledge the harm done to victims and say, it doesn't matter how long you live, this is still wrong and therefore still deserves to be punished. Well, it sort of seemed like it wasn't really just Oscar groaning on the trial, right? It was like the entire Third Reich on the trial. So mm-hmm. promoting a sense of responsibility in the national sense in, in, in Germany, that's like... Mm-hmm. To me, that's valuable. And I, I, like I said in the interview, I actually think that they've really succeeded at that. Except that then brings up the problem that his defense is raising, right? Because he's not Germany. He's Oscar Groening. I would definitely agree it's not appropriate to like take him as a symbolic way of punishing Germany, which I think is the problem they made in the 50s and 60s trials where they were just like you worst of the worst we'll hang you and and everyone else go yeah i agree with that point that he should not be the representative of germany as as a whole but i also think that his own crimes are enough that he should be held responsible for them and Mm -hmm. the fact that his trial sort of is basically putting germany on trial that's just sort of because of what he was involved in that's not really a good reason to not prosecute him. He was still guilty. Like he did it. He didn't have to join the SS. He didn't have to do any of those things. He shouldn't be held as the representative and take on that whole the guilt of Germany, but also he's guilty. So he should take on his own guilt. So Amon Maritza, and I think it's worth pointing out that duet the episode aired some 21 years before the arrest of Oscar Groening, which is pretty remarkable because you could watch that episode and think that it was about Oscar Groening. Yeah. But, you know, the dramatic tension of the episode leads us towards thinking that Maritza is a hero. He's sort of like martyred at the end. Kira sees the, you know, the wrong of her pursuit for vengeance. Which I disagree with. Is Amon Maritza a war criminal? Yeah. I mean, isn't he? I mean, there are things that are distinct from something like Oscar Groening. And For sure. Here, maybe we're getting away from the principle. There is a certain irony that Oscar Groening was found out because of an interview he gave to the BBC that he says was inspired by the desire to denounce Holocaust deniers and that he basically said, these things did happen. I participated in them, though he was not really remorseful in that interview. This opposed to like Amon Maritza, who's committing like an enormous act of self-sacrifice to call attention. We don't know the degree to which Amon Maritza's participation was voluntary or how useful 
you know, like we don't really know if he was operating the camp or an administrator who was posted to the camp serving another purpose. So like, I guess like I can't say categorically that he was guilty. He's a cog. Yeah. He's a cog in the machine. Right. Yeah, I agree with that principle that if you operate the machine of death, you are an accessory to murder the same as the person who who fires the phaser, if you will. I think that he can be a war criminal and also be forgiven, if that makes sense. <laughs> he can be a war criminal and make up for it as well. Both can be possible that what he did was wrong and he also recognizes it, unlike Oscar Groening, who didn't really seem that sad about it. Yeah. Although I have to say, I do get frustrated in television and in, in Star Trek specifically when they're like rushing to redeem a perpetrator of crimes against, well, I guess not humanity, a perpetrator of enormous crimes. And I think the the worst example of this is probably Star Trek Discovery. I do not like Emperor Giorgio and her whole redemption arc. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand from a pieces on the board position why the writers might be like, okay, Michelle Yeoh is amazing, and she is. And having like a mirror character there kind of changes up the dynamic, and it does. But like, she admits in season one, it's sort of like throwaway lines to having committed genocides on, on Talos and Mintaka. She's a killer and an enslaver. And I don't think that she should get to have a redemption arc. Yeah. It's sometimes framed around like, well, she loves Michael so much so that it's okay. And I was thinking about a poem that we read in my undergrad History of the Holocaust course. And the poem is by my favorite poet, Leonard Cohen. All there is to know about Adolf Eichmann. Eyes, medium, hair, medium, weight, medium, height, medium, distinguishing features, none. Number of fingers, 10. Number of toes, 10. Intelligence, medium. What did you expect? Talons, oversized incisors, green saliva, madness. Hmm. You know, you mentioned that Oscar Groening had 70 years with his children and grandchildren and so on. Like, all these guys loved their families and Germany and their communities and whatever. They were in some ways, like, remarkably unremarkable people, but for the fact that they committed genocides. And so like, I think none of those behaviors are in any way redemptive. No, but you're right. Well, I really like that poem. And honestly, something I appreciate a lot about Deep Space Nine is that Gal Dukat doesn't get to be redeemed. And they kind of flirt with it in like season four and the beginning of season five. It seems like you know, his relationship with his daughter and learning what he learned fighting the Klingons has somehow made him better. And nope, the writers show us like same old Dukat. He's the same Nazi he's always been. In Duet, we saw the survivors of Galatep come to the station. And I thought it was interesting how, for the most part, they don't speak. Many of them have scarves covering their mouths or perhaps covering maimings. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk more about your family and being second and third generation survivors in a broader Jewish community. So unfortunately, I didn't participate in many of the large uh, Holocaust education activities. And when I was a kid, I didn't really understand why that was or what had been 
the reason behind that, my dad was like vehemently opposed to it. Do you mean like Yom HaShoah and Holocaust Education Week? No, actually. I, I mean like March of the Living, for example. Hmm. So at the time, that super upset me because members in my high school class were going and I felt very connected to it. I thought maybe my dad thought that I was too fragile to handle it or that my grandparents left that place and we shouldn't return there. But more recently, my dad told me why he really didn't want us to go. And that was because he didn't want us to get the wrong impression, which kind of sounds like a strange thing to say. But at one point, he worked at CGA Montreal, which is the local Jewish federation in Montreal. And he overheard one of the organizers of the Marshall Living discussing how they should staff it. And what my dad heard was this guy, who he says was a huge asshole, saying, well, I don't want any of these depressed survivors who are still freaked out about the whole thing. He wanted survivors that could give the kids an experience, which I suppose is understandable. But these freaked out survivors were my grandparents. And my dad really didn't want us to get the wrong impression from whoever they did choose to go on the trip. So he was super against it. He never told us that at the time. I only found this out much more recently. It just grossed me out so much that that kind of attitude, like, ugh, ugh. There's a narrative. And it's a narrative that, frankly, I used in my story, that he suffered. And then in the story I read, which is a real story, I, it's, it is the letters, but the way it's told tells a narrative. And then my story ended with the optimism of he made it to Israel. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the main problems, actually, with present day Holocaust education. Although, I mean, I've been to the Newberger Center for their Holocaust Education Week, and I've really enjoyed myself. But something that was interesting to me, this was actually something that they did touch on in, in the documentary, was Eva Kor. She was super controversial in the documentary because she was the one that forgave Oscar Groening. And she had this whole, uh, like, according to Matthew, she had this whole thing about forgiveness. And that was super shocking to me because she was a twin with uh, Dr. Joseph Mengele. Um, and this was a doctor that uh, apparently my Bobby said was the only person she would have considered testifying against because he was so disgusting. My Bobby would not have participated otherwise because she thought like it would have been unimaginably difficult for her and just not really worth it. That really shocked me. And the focus on that as well is just is very American, I guess. Like, wow, look, they made it through and they survived. And like, isn't that great? What this brings me to is actually a really shocking story also. I mean, all of these stories are shocking that my father told me about. He said that there is a man from his childhood and his name was Yaakov Gura. I tried to look him up and I could not find him, but my dad remembers him very clearly. Uh, he was a survivor as well, and he was related to my family by marriage. And his daughter was somebody that my bubby really remembered playing with as a child. So he was like the father of, of this little girl that my bubby used to play with. Um, and my bubby recognized him one time when he was in Montreal, and so they connected, and she was always looking for relatives who, who had survived. So he was also in the Warsaw Ghetto until it was liquidated. He lived in Ottawa and became friends with my grandparents. And he wrote several books on how the Warsaw Ghetto uprising was actually enhanced by North American Jewry to paint a picture of the Jewish people not as helpless sheep led to slaughter. And controversially, when Yad Vashem was first built, it was almost entirely a memorial to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Yes. Not the Yad Vashem that exists now. 
Right. And this is very in line with the experience that my grandparents had when they came to North America. They weren't welcomed. No one felt sorry for them. What's problematic about this entire thing is that this uprising is what's valiantly remembered and cherished by the Jewish community in North America. Not that it didn't happen, but that it's a few weeks of a history that has been turned into the whole history of the event. But not only that, it, the actual event itself, it was a suicide mission. It was not uh, an attempt to free the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto. That could not have happened. Mm -hmm. And what this guy would write about was really that resistance was impossible. If you just looked at something the wrong way or picked something up off the ground, you could be shot. There was no ability to resist. And they didn't have to be ashamed of that or to justify it, or to have this enhanced story about how they weren't just led as sheep to slaughter. And we don't have to focus on the brave Jews. Every Jew that survived was brave. And every Jew that died was as well. Focusing on the, the suicide mission of less than 1% of the population of the Warsaw Ghetto taints their memory and makes them seem as though they didn't try hard enough and they didn't die valiantly. Mm -hmm. That's disgusting. We were really surprised, me and Dr. Adam. So he did a little digging, actually, and he found this article written by Emmanuel Tanay. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry from Wayne State University in Detroit. He wrote an article called The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, Myth and Reality. And I'll just read the abstract here because um, it just sort of summarizes it. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising myth has been created over time to frame the event as a guerrilla-like belated resistance of the Warsaw Jews to the genocide. In reality, only a very small fraction of the ghetto's population, totaling 220 young people, instigated and carried out the uprising on April 19, 1943. The suicidal, futile nature of this event is frequently denied, but we, the Holocaust survivors, know that resistance was impossible, and playing for time was the only avenue of frustrating the genocidal program. The mythical version of the uprising is inconsistent with the reality and memoirs of those who participated in the event. The rest of the article is actually amazing. I thought it was super interesting. He talks about how you don't survive genocide by having an uprising like this. There was no result of this that would have led to people living. So Pola, my grandmother, had said she didn't see an uprising and remember, she was there until it was liquidated. But she didn't really trust herself to truly have an opinion and never really spoke about it. Just more as a commentary on this this guy that was friends with them. She was like, yeah, I, I didn't see it, but I, I don't know. You said that there's nothing the victims could have done to stop the genocide. And I agree. But there is something some people could have done. And I think about Action T4. So Action T4 was the Nazis' program for the extermination of people with physical and mental handicaps. And they started it, I think, in 39 or 40. And they rounded up and killed maybe 250 to 300,000 Germans with physical and mental disabilities. And then in 1941, they stopped. And Hitler ordered the stop. Why? Because... Everyday Germans did not tolerate their family members and neighbors being rounded up and killed with respect to Gentile disabled people. Right. And putting that in the context of, and I, I want to be clear, there, there are Germans who resisted and there are Germans who tried to save Jews, but putting that in the context of overwhelming German complicity in the Holocaust 
is a pretty scary thing to think about. Yeah. That that the people en masse as a community refuse to tolerate one mass killing and that put an end to that killing and but a different killing continued. Oh, I don't I don't like that at all. <laughs> and just to bring this into Star Trek because this is Star Trek and the Jews, when we first meet the Bajorans in the next gen episode Ensign Row, the Cardassians are still there. The genocide is still happening and our heroes are disappointed in it but unwilling to take action. And that is a behavior that I think reflects sadly on many societies, including our own right now, as we continue to tolerate genocides around the world. This whole conversation that I'm talking about, the reframing of the story to shape it as brave Jews who fought and didn't just lay down and die like my uncle wanted to do. This takes me into this book that I read recently. I just, I want to be clear that I really don't agree with everything in this book. I just think it's important to listen to something that sometimes you don't agree with. I must say I absolutely despised it as I started to read it. Everything about it was offensive, but I got some things out of it and I recommend reading it with an open mind. What's the book? So the book is, it's called The Holocaust Industry. Oof. And it is, it's written by Norman Finkelstein, Oof. a super controversial character in the present day Jewish community. He's a he's a historian of sorts. He's a a child of survivors and his family history is quite similar to my own. His take is basically that it's <laughs> this this industry that he describes as the Holocaust industry is that North American and Israeli Jewry basically have exploited uh, the suffering of Jewish people in the Holocaust in order to victimize themselves in various political spheres. Um, and he's a super uh, left-wing anti-Israel character. Although notably, he was purged from the intellectual movement of pro-Palestinian academics for refusing to kowtow to, to their dogma as well. So he's now hated by all sides of the Israel-Palestine debate. <laughs> he's He's uh, hated by pretty much everyone. He was uh, he was a professor and he was rejected tenure because of his super controversial views. And for being an asshole. And for being that an asshole. part of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think he's a very strange guy. Um, his book is super angry. Yeah. His book is basically him being pissed off at all of the North American Jews that didn't help his family and that didn't care about uh, the Holocaust survivors when they came here and that only ended up caring about them after 1967 Arab-Israeli war. And that's his analysis, right? Like, we know that the opinion of Holocaust survivors shifted at one point, And his analysis is that it's because of the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. That's his stretch from the primary source is what I'm saying. There are narrow points that I agree with him on. Like, I agree with his point that survivors didn't get a fair shake of reparations compared to institutions and the state of Israel. Though he argues that, like, not just that their slice of the pie was too small, but that the whole pie was also too big. And that I think is just wrong. Like, I think that actually it was the other way that like learning the lessons of Versailles and wanting to prop up West Germany against the communists led to reparations being like artificially low. He's super distasteful. And sometimes when I, I watch some of his lectures, he's <laughs> he just has such a unemotional way about talking about these things in a way that is super offensive and yeah. really does make him an asshole. But I also think that part of it is probably his way of dealing with it. 
I mean, his parents came out of it, right? They, his mother was, came out of Majdanek. His father was in a variety of concentration camps. I think there's something to that. In the same way that, that we had that emotional response to Eva watching The Accountant of Auschwitz, that's how I feel when I see Norman Finkelstein say that, that in present day there is no anti-Semitism in Europe, or saying that... Yeah. Or, or him saying that the murder of the French cartoonist at Charlie Hebdo w- was akin to if victims of the Holocaust had killed Nazi propagandists at Der Sturmer. Like, come on, Norman Finkelstein. And more than anything else in him, I just see trauma. And I've reached a point in my own life where it's like, stop getting angry at people like that and just try to understand complexions of their victimhood which is ironic because he's trying to minimize victimhood in some ways but it is still the re- the read i find i think his point is that victimhood is being claimed by people that were not victims and that's his main yeah. problem and he's like well this is a distortion of my literal family history and i'm not okay with that and that is actual holocaust denial that's distortion of holocaust i i experienced in my time as a jewish student leader coming up through the hillel system that there are some Holocaust education organizations that effectively exist to do pro-Israel propaganda, and that's, to do Hasbara. And that's super problematic. And it's not all of them. <laughs> and it's not all of them, but there are like specific, like I'm thinking of one specific one in Canada that like fortunately as of September, I think has a new executive director who's someone that I respect and hopefully things will change. But yeah, I find that like very offensive. And I do agree that that is a certain form of Holocaust denial. And it's exploitation. It's exploitation of people who did not consent to that use of their their memory or their suffering. Mm -hmm. Basically, he's a super lefty guy who hates Israel and he really hates that Israel has any claim to anything to do with the Holocaust, despite the fact that there are many Holocaust survivors, children of Holocaust survivors, and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors that live there. You pointed out in Duet that, like, Kira forgives Maritza. Yeah. But? But it's it's not really her her mistake to forgive. I think that's sort of his view of reparations in general, maybe that are being made to Jewish organizations and not directly to Holocaust survivors. I know for a fact that my my grandfather refused all reparations. He thought it was morally reprehensible. He couldn't take money for what they had done. My grandmother did. Something that Finkelstein talks about is his his own family's poverty, I guess. The fact that his mother basically got nothing from these Jewish organizations that were set out to find Holocaust survivors that had sort of fallen through the cracks. And that the Germans wanted to pay reparations to, but didn't have uh, access to communication with them. And so they, they did mm-hmm. it through these, these Jewish organizations. And she got like $3,500. That's how much she got in total from her Holocaust survival. When I went to Berlin, I was like, Dad, you'd really feel good if you came here. You don't come here and, and are like, ah, they shoved it under the rug. It's like you go there and in Berlin, you know it. There are little indications of it all over the city. Just like mm-hmm. on on the sidewalk, there are little like plaques. Like this person lived here and was sent to wherever they were sent to. Right. I mean, not that anything could offer closure. Perhaps depending on who the who who it is, but that did offer some closure for me. I thought. And by the way, walking down the streets of Toronto, you'd be hard pressed to find any reminder of the fact that there were 
Iroquois, Anishinaabe, Mississaugan settlements throughout this territory that were either wiped out or had their land taken from them. Yes, we know as this is something that we've done. It's not an easy thing to accept the atrocities committed by your own government, your own democratically elected government. So I hated his book, right? I really did not like it. I was going through it and <laughs> Adam was there and he was like, why are you reading this? And I was like, oh my God, I'm so mad all the time. I cannot handle this. And then at one point, there was something that I really personally connected with in his book. And that was that there is a difference between children and grandchildren of survivors and and not. And that not all Jew is the same coming out of the Holocaust. And the, that the Holocaust is not just a shared history of all of us that is equally affecting each of us. Mm-hmm. That was something I never, I never thought of. It, it sort of explained why I always felt super exceptionally uncomfortable and distressed in Hebrew school when we would learn about the slaughter of my whole family as a topic of our history. And like nobody next to me had people that had come out of it. And we were all treated the same. There was no, like, conversation or sensitivity to the fact that, like, these were actual people that some of us are related to. It's not just our history that happened. It's, like, a reality for a lot of people, like, that have lasting effects. There's a difference between the things that different survivors experienced, and each one is unique and has its own tragedies, and you can't treat them all the same. Holocaust survivor doesn't mean the same thing for each person that came out of the Holocaust. And that's okay. We're going to close it down there. Thank you for listening. This was a tough episode and we appreciate you staying through with us. Hebrew school homework for next month. We're going to be looking at all of season one of Star Trek Lower Decks, but focusing especially on temporal edict, moist vessel, and no small parts. Thank you to our guest, Matthew Scheuchet, director of The Accountant of Auschwitz, which is streaming now on CBC Gem in Canada and on Netflix everywhere else. The letter I read at the start of the show was translated by the late Sam Simchevich, poet, author, survivor, and past curator of the Judaica Museum at Betzedek Congregation in Toronto. Mr. Simchevich passed in 2017 at the age of 97. Our opening fanfare was arranged by Dr. Adam Steiderman. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. Thank you.